Amen. Well, there's a lot going on in our church right now, isn't there? It's like, appreciate all that the Lord is doing and so many different ministries and and uh, what a privilege that I have is just to once again open up God's Word and and uh, have the ministry of the Word have its effect, have its way in our hearts and our lives. And so I want to invite you to turn back to the book of Daniel this morning, Daniel chapter 11. And this is a chunky chapter, to say the least. And um, because of its length, I'm not going to read it as we begin, but I want to get us thinking about what's going on in this passage by talking about one of the most troubling movements that has been slowly sleeping, uh, seeping into the evangelical church over the past 20 years or so. Uh, you may have heard of this. It's called open theism or the openness of God. Are you familiar with that term? Have you heard that? Um, this stuff usually starts in Europe, by the way. Um, liberal theologians and, and seminaries um, in Europe, which is in many ways is a post-Christian uh, society, and uh, we're seeing uh, that happening very rapidly here in the United States as well. Uh, we are fast moving to that post-Christian um, culture that uh, Europe has become, and uh, we're always a few few hundred years behind them, but uh, what happens there typically happens here, and it's the same uh, for theology and, and for uh, biblical truth, and so uh, liberal theologians and, and seminaries in Europe introduced uh, this concept to America in the early 1980s, and since then it's been uh, promoted by some professors and, and pastors and authors as a viable alternative to the traditional Orthodox understanding of God. And this is the, this is the understanding, or the argument, if you will, for the openness of God. It goes like this, that we as finite human beings do not know the future. You agree? You're like, I don't know, should I agree with that or not? Uh, yeah, of course, we, we agree with that. We don't know the future. We don't know what will happen tomorrow or the next day or the next. And so our lives are filled with uncertainty. And, and so we plan, we make decisions based on what seems best at the time. But later, we're often surprised when we realized that we didn't make the best decision because things didn't turn out the way we had planned or expected that they would. Y'all okay with that so far? Absolutely, that's humanity. Unfortunately, a growing number of scholars and professors and pastors believe that these same things apply to God. Uh, it's, it's what the psalmist said, that you have erred in that you thought I was like you. God said that. The problem is you, you think that I'm like you, and I'm nothing like you. And yet some teach that because God experiences time like we do, and because the future does not yet exist, God doesn't know what the future holds. Although he's aware of the various possibilities of what could happen, the free will decisions of God's creatures are unknown to him until the decisions are made. In other words, he, he doesn't know what you're going to do tomorrow, the decision you're going to make, but he knows all the contingencies and he's ready to respond to whatever you decide to do. 
And so God is left to decide and to act in this world according to what he thinks is most likely to occur uh, because he is sometimes mistaken about what he thought might happen. God occasionally finds himself regretting a decision and resorting to plan B. I'm not just making this up. I and mean, this is what some people are teaching, preaching, writing in books and teaching in seminary classes. And, and you say, well, where do they get that in Scripture? Well, uh, hopefully you think immediately of the flood, for example, where it says that God regretted that he had made man because they had become so sinful. And what did he do? Well, he decided, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over again. Well, that kind of sounds like a plan B, doesn't it? Or how about when uh, God delivered the nation of Israel out of, ex- out of Egypt and they were in the middle of this exodus and, and uh, they were uh, at Mount Sinai and God was giving them the Ten Commandments and, and the exact time he was giving them the Ten Commandments by, by which he wanted them to live uh, by, uh, according to, they were down worshiping a golden calf. And uh, Moses came down the mountain and he smashed the... The, 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 the tablets, and, and God said, don't worry about it, Moses. I'll wipe them out. We'll start fresh. We'll, we'll make a whole new generation, and, and, and you can lead them. And what does it say? That Moses interceded on behalf of the nation of Israel and, and, and begged God not to do that. He said, God, your name's at stake here. What, what are the people in Egypt going to think if you just destroy your people in the wilderness? And so, so it says that God repented. Uh, he, he chose not to do what he said he was going to do. And so you think, well, okay, those are kind of tricky passages to, to, inter- to interpret, and, and that's where they go to, to make their case for this false doctrine. But the point is they make is that God learns from historical events as they occur and actually changes his mind and plan in response to them. Probably the most well-known advocate of this uh, open theism is a man named Clark Pinnock, who wrote a book called The Most Moved Mover. The Most Moved Mover. And he, in that book, he completely redefines God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his, his immutability, his faithfulness, his eternality, his wisdom, his love, and really creates a whole new God who bears little or no resemblance to the God of the Bible. Let me just read for you some of the heretical statements that Pinnock makes in his book, and I'm just quoting directly from the book. Quote, though God knows all there is to know about the world, there are aspects about the future that even God does not know. Quote, God is not now in complete control of the world. Things happen which God has not willed. God's plans at this point in history are not always fulfilled. God confronts rebellious agents who are able to thwart his desires, at least for a time and in a measure. Quote, for the sake of loving relations, God chose not to exercise total sovereignty and took the risk that things might not turn out the way he wanted them to, end quote. Quote, thinking of the future as partly settled and partly unsettled forces us to concentrate our attention on the wisdom of God. In other words, let's not focus on his sovereignty. He's not sovereign, but he is really wise because he has to... He's always kind of calling audibles here as, as, as he, oh, that didn't work, i got to do this. And so we can be amazed and impressed by God's wisdom and adapting to all the different decisions that people are being made. He is wise, quote, resourceful and can cope with all contingencies. He is not an insecure deity who needs to control everything and foreknow everything in order to accomplish everything. And then lastly, quote, God controls some things but not everything 
The Bible does not teach that God exercises all controlling sovereignty. Really? Well, I would submit to you that this flies in the face of everything that we've been learning from our study in, the, in Daniel. I mean, the, the, the book of Daniel alone refutes this heretical, blasphemous teaching of open theism. Because not only does open theism contradict everything the Bible teaches about the character of God, theology, if you will, but it also contradicts every prophetic passage in the Bible. It contradicts prophecy. As one man stated, quote, this claim that God lacks a comprehensive knowledge of the future simply does not square with the reality of predictive prophecy of Scripture. He goes on, he says, it stretches the lines of credibility to support that God and the biblical writers are only making shrewd guesses when highly detailed predictions about future events are being made. And we're going to see uh, once again this morning in chapter 11 of Daniel that, that Daniel was not making some shrewd guesses about what might happen in the future. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Daniel was writing prophecy, which is simply history before it happens. That's all prophecy is. It's history before it happens. And, and this is the chapter, by the way, that, that has caused liberal scholars to deny that Daniel was the author of this book. I mentioned that when we began this study, that this is one of the most contested books uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, let alone the Old Bible, um, for this reason. Because in the minds of these liberal uh, theologians and scholars, it's impossible for Daniel to have predicted the future with such precision. And because he, what he wrote in this chapter parallels exactly what has played out in world history, so far at least, has led some to conclude that Daniel could not have written this when he, when he says he did, 6th century B.C., but it was written by someone maybe in the 1st century B.C. Uh, after these events that are recorded took place. Uh, in other words, some deceitful person claiming to be Daniel simply recorded history to make it look like he was predicting the future. That's their view of the book of Daniel. Well, it does beg the question, how could Daniel, or any other biblical writer for that matter, have the ability to foretell the future? Well, it comes down to our understanding of the doctrine of divine inspiration of Scripture. Ultimately, it was not Daniel writing, it was what? It was God writing through Men like Daniel. In other words, God told Daniel and the other prophets exactly what to write down. And because God knows the beginning from the end, he's able to reveal to them the details of history before they happen. And the reason why God can predict the future is because he planned the future. Turn over quickly to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46. And I've referenced this before. But uh, this is a verse that I think we cannot reference enough. I just love what God says here in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. And if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline it, bracket it, and maybe in the margin you can write a, this is a biblical view of history, okay? This is a biblical 
view of history. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8, verse 8, remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. And that's why we can say that history is literally his story. It's his story. And that's why God can predict the future with such accuracy. And here in the last three chapters of, of, of the book of Daniel... We have an example of how accurate and how precise biblical prophecy really is. And we began looking at these chapters last week, and uh, we said that chapters 10, 11, and 12 form a unit. And remember, there was no chapter breaks originally, and so it's easy to kind of get confused here that maybe these are talking about separate things, but really chapter 10 all the way through the end of chapter 12 uh, is all talking about the same thing. And, and it's really this, this third and final vision that, that God gave Daniel uh, and, and the interpretation from the angel Gabriel. But, uh, but chapter 10, we saw last week, is really the preface. It just sets the scene. It tells us where Daniel was and what led to this vision. And then today we're going to look at the vision itself uh, in Daniel chapter 11. And then next week, Lord willing, in chapter 12, we're going to look at the postscript or kind of the appendix, if you will, the, the final ending, the conclusion of the book of Daniel. But beginning in chapter 10, Daniel explained the setting and the subject of this vision. Remember back in verse 1 of chapter 10, he said, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of, what does it say? Great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So this vision that we're about to look at in chapter 11 this morning is all about this great conflict or warfare that would take place between Israel and the Gentile nations around her until she truly repents and is finally granted peace at the return of Jesus Christ, her Messiah, the Prince of Peace. And all that we're going to see here in chapter 11 uh, relates to God punishing Israel and preparing Israel to receive her Messiah. I thought one commentator said it well and just summarized what we talked about last week and what we're going to see this morning. Listen carefully. Uh, Quote, the chastening of Israel sets the context for Daniel 11. The prophet Jeremiah declared Israel would be punished by spending 70 years in captivity. We already have seen that. And while in captivity, the prophet Daniel realized the 70 years were nearly over and expected the Jewish people to return to their land, Jerusalem, to be restored and the temple rebuilt. But when permitted to return, only a small fragment of the people made the trip to the promised land. Jerusalem remained in disrepair and the temple in ruins. Instead of responding to God's chastening, they remained entrenched in the pagan lifestyle of Babylon. In other words, the reason why God plucked them out of Israel out of the promised land, out of Jerusalem, and sent them to Babylon to begin with is because of their sinful worldliness. 
And he wanted to send them to Babylon to purify them and to lead them to repentance. Well, apparently they got even more entrenched in a pagan lifestyle in Babylon. And then when King Cyrus, the, the new king of Persia, uh, or the, the new kingdom of Persia that was now in charge, had defeated Babylon, says, now you can all go back. Only a handful of them went back. And so this was obviously a discouragement to Daniel, and so he turned to God in prayer. And this is what this author says. He wanted to know why things hadn't turned out the way he expected. After mourning with fasting and prayer for three weeks, Daniel received the prophecy contained in Daniel chapter 11. He was told that the chastening of Israel would continue until the nation was completely restored. At that time, the Messiah will establish his kingdom on the earth. In other words, what Daniel realized was that the nation of Israel wasn't just going to suffer for 70 years in captivity. But this, 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 this suffering, this chastening, this discipline was going to continue until Jesus came back the second time to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Well, obviously this was uh, not what Daniel was uh, wanting to hear this was a disheartening prophecy that his people were going to have to continue to suffer. Here he was thinking, hey, our suffering's almost over. Uh, we're, we're, the 70-year captivity is done. We all can go back to the promised land and live happily ever after. And God says, no, that's not how it's going to work. And so in the midst of this disheartening, maybe even depressing prophecy, God assured Daniel that even though Israel would have to suffer much until Christ returned to establish his, his millennial kingdom, that they would be taken care of by the archangel Michael, who God had especially assigned to protect and guard Israel. We met him back in chapter 10, verse 21. Remember this? However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And we talked about last week in, in, the, in, the, in light of the, 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 the spiritual warfare that's going on all the time the, the, in the spirit realm, right? That there's uh, angels and there's demons and they're warring against one another and they, they're referred to as princes here, small p, uh, in in. Uh, in, in Daniel chapter 10, and so uh, apparently there was a, a prince of Persia, there was a prince of, uh, uh, there's going to be, we're going to see a prince of Greece, um, but then there was also uh, Gabriel, and there's Michael the archangel, and so Michael is the angel assigned to the nation of Israel to protect and guard her. And we see this again in chapter 12, verse 1, notice, now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And so we have really, chapter 11 is sandwiched between these two references to Israel's protector angel, Michael. And so let's look at this, this vision that's sandwiched here between these references to Michael. And, 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 and it's Gabriel... Gabriel is the messenger angel. If, if Michael is the protector angel, uh, defender angel, Gabriel is the messenger angel uh, to the nation of Israel. And, and he reveals to Daniel both the near 
and the distant future of Israel. That's really essentially what we're going to see here in chapter 11, the, the near and the distant future of Israel. One commentator said it well here. He says, quote, full of betrayal, battles, and bloodshed, which is what we're about to see in this chapter. This chapter is full of betrayal, full of battles, full of bloodshed. Um, the picture promises more heartache for Daniel's people who are destined to get caught in the crossfire of a world at war. That's where I came up with that title this morning, Caught in the Crossfire. And what we're going to see is that the kings of the north are, are we're going to see, it's already happened, have been warring or did war with the kings of the south. So you've got Syria and you've got Egypt warning against each other. If you know anything about the geography of, of the Middle East, what is smack dab in the middle between Syria and Egypt? Israel, the, the promised land, the jewel, the beautiful land as it's referred to in this chapter. And so what, what's happening here? Israel just continually gets run over as the northern kings come down to fight the southern kings and the southern kings go up to fight the northern kings, they just keep running up and down through the nation of Israel and uh, the nation of Israel just gets worked. And they're getting, you know, they're getting it from both sides. They're getting persecuted and, and they're getting destroyed and imprisoned and, and, and so they're literally caught in the crossfire between these two warring regions. And so I just want to simply divide this chapter into two sections. And uh, first of all, we're going to see wars in the near future. This is verses 1 through 35. And, and really, everything in chapters, uh, verses 1 through 35 has already happened, okay? It's already happened in world history. There's, in fact, not only does the Bible talk about it, but other historical books record the fulfillment of verses 1 through 35 to the T. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then the chapter ends with the final war in the distant future. The final war in the distant future, verses 36 through 45. This is yet to happen. This is what's going to happen in the end. And I think what's, what's, um, what, what we see in those uh, final verses is, is the time of tribulation. Well, there'll be all sorts of wars and, um, and, and ultimately will climax in Jesus returning and uh, destroying uh, the Antichrist and all those who associate with him. Now, let me say this with just that basic outline. This is one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult chapter in the book of Daniel to understand and apply. And I've had, personally, I've had a hard time getting my mind around this chapter and, and frankly, my heart into it because it's easy to get bogged down in, in all the details. I mean, just for example, in, in, in Calvin's commentary on Daniel, he took 40 pages to give a detailed description of every event predicted in this chapter. Now, I didn't read Calvin's commentary. I was like, whoa, okay, I'm moving on here. <laughs> um, but most of the commentaries I read just left my mind swimming with a bunch of names and dates and battles and alliances and betrayals. And man, it just seemed like a, a, an ancient soap opera. And so I'm going to hopefully spare you from that this morning. 
And my goal is just to help you see the big picture of this chapter rather than just wading through a bunch of seemingly irrelevant, insignificant facts of hundreds of years of world history. I just want to just just give you a couple of examples of how accurate and specific biblical prophecy really is. And so let's look first of all at the wars in the near future. These are things, again, that already happened and First of all, we see wars uh, between Persia and Greece. Wars between Persia and Greece. And again, this is, uh, in Daniel's day, this was present tense. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Um, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain more, far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong enough through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So again, remember, this, is, this, this vision was given to Daniel in the third year of, of Cyrus, the king of Persia. That's what it says back in chapter 10, verse 1. Um, and it was in the first year that actually Gabriel came to con- uh, encourage him and support him, talking about Michael, I believe. And I think the reason why Michael, or excuse me, Gabriel came to encourage, um, encourage Michael is because this is when Darius or Cyrus um, had given the decree for Israel to go back to the promised land. And if there is this spiritual warfare going on, is this as chapter 10 seems to indicate, well, that was the last thing Satan would want to have happen is the people of God, God's people, the Jews, to go back to the promised land to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, because that would be in preparation for who? The Messiah. And so, of course, Satan would have done everything he could to attempt or attempt to block this or to thwart Cyrus's decree from people getting back there. And so, again, we see uh, Gabriel had risen up to support and strengthen Michael who had recently come to uh, his aid when the prince of Persia had delayed him from delivering the answer to Daniel's prayer in chapter 10. So these angels are working together, supporting one another uh, in this very strategic time. Now, verse 2, we have Gabriel now delivering, finally delivering the message from God, which, which he began... Uh, uh, well, which he wanted to, to, uh, to, to give to Daniel, but was held up by this prince of Persia, this demonic force of some sort. But now he, he gets to the point where he can finally tell Daniel uh, the answer to his prayer, and he begins with predicting that the Medo-Persian Empire, which was in, in power at the time, under Darius, Cyrus, synonymous terms there, um, that they would have a succession of four kings after Cyrus or Darius. And so history records that these kings were Cambyses, Pseudo-Smyrtus, Darius I, and Xerxes I, which was a Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. Uh, he was the most powerful, influential, wealthy of all the four kings. And during his reign, he amassed great wealth and a great army and attacked Greece, but was soundly defeated. Notice it says he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, the Greeks never forgot the attack, even though they defeated them, and 150, 150 years later, they sought revenge under Alexander the Great. 
Look at verse 3, and, and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases, but as soon as he has risen, the kingdom, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. And history records that in three short years, Alexander the Great conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Persia. I mean, he was unstoppable. He was, of course, the bronze belly and thighs of Nebuchadnezzar's image back in chapter 2. He was the winged leopard of Daniel's first vision in chapter 7. He was the prominent horn of the goat in Daniel's second vision, chapter 8. And so since Israel was under Persian dominion, when Greece defeated Persia, they acquired possession of Israel. But as I mentioned before, Alexander the Great died prematurely at the age of 33 from malaria, complications from alcoholism. Uh, He had no heirs. All of them were murdered, including uh, a mentally retarded half-brother, an illegitimate child, a baby born after Alexander's death. And so consequently, his kingdom was divided into four parts. This is the idea here. The kingdom will be broken up, parceled out toward the four points of the compass, And it was under four generals. Seleucus was over Syria and Mesopotamia. Ptolemy was over Egypt. Lysimachus over Thrace and parts of Asia Minor. And Cassander over Macedonia Macedonia and Greece. And again, this division was already prophesied through the four heads of the leopard, chapter 7, through the four horns on the goat, uh, chapter 8. And so that's... The first thing we see here is wars between... Persia and Greece, which happened exactly the way it was prophesied here in Daniel chapter 11. Now, secondly, let's look at the wars between Egypt and Syria. The wars between Egypt and Syria. That's what's happening in verses 5 through 20. And here, Daniel's vision focused on the ongoing conflict between two of the generals and really their dynasties that, uh, that, that, that Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided between and, and the Seleucids. Are, are really the kings of the north, that's Syria, and then the Ptolemies are the kings of the south, that's Egypt. And again, like I mentioned earlier, since the land of Israel, lay, land of Israel land, laid right between them, it often served as the battleground for their conflicts. I mean, if you're going to have a war between this country and this country, well, let's just come together and clash in the country between us. And that's what happened. And so during this 200-year tug of war, if you will, the land of Israel was invaded first by one and then by the other. And uh, what you see here are two centuries of conflict in which Israel was a pawn between the Ptolemaic kings in the south and the Seleucid kings to the north. But we know in reality, it was the kings of the north and the south who were the real pawns, right? That God was using to fulfill his purposes for the nation of Israel. And that's why we've chose to title this book, Serving the King of Heaven in a World of Pawns. All these worldly leaders who think they're all bad and, you know, they're the kings, they're really just pawns in God's hands to accomplish God's purpose. And so let's look and see what God does through these dynasties. Verse 5, 
Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Excuse me. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he, as he who supported her in those times." But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods will be with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. He will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. So initially here, the... Ptolemaic dynasty in the south was more powerful than the Seleucid dynasty in the north, but as time went on, the northern dynasty uh, increased in power. And so in an attempt to resolve this ongoing tension between the two dynasties, they sought to form an alliance through marriage. And so Ptolemy uh, II, the king of Egypt, gave his daughter Berenice. Again, this is, you say, where's that? Well, this is all in history books, and it's just proving that this, what this prophecy uh, or this prophecy uh, came true um, that, that the king of Egypt gave his daughter Berenice, handed marriage to Antiochus II, who was the king of Assyria, who was already married, by the way, to a woman named Laodice. And uh, nevertheless, he divorced her and went ahead and married Berenice. But after Ptolemy died, Antiochus divorced Berenice, took back his former wife, Laodice. And then Laodice took revenge on Berenice by poisoning her and her son along with Antiochus, and now her son Callinicus became king. You got all that? This is like history, okay? But this is, you say, what is all this talking about? It's talking about this stuff that you can read in history books. And so Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, wanted revenge for his sister's murder, so he brought an army against Callinus and defeated him and returned to Egypt with hundreds of idols and statues and thousands of tal- talents of silver. Now, that's what that's explaining. And now he goes on, verse 10. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may gain, he may again wage war up to this, up to his very fortress. So Ptolemy the fourth retaliated by invading the north. Um, I should say, Ptolemy the third. I'm see, I told you you're getting all messed up here, right? Ptolemy the third. The southern king now controlled Israel, and yet Calenus, the northern king, had two sons who amassed this huge army to avenge their father's death. One of the sons died. The remaining son, Antiochus III, the great, drove the Ptolemies out of Palestine. And so in 11 and 12, um, you've got Ptolemy IV retaliating by inviting the north, which simply served to make Antiochus, Antiochus the Great mad, and they just retaliated. And so you just see this back and forth, back and forth. Verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again rise raise a great multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. 
Verse 14, now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choices, troops, for there will, will be no strength, for there will be no strength to make a stand. And so it's talking about Antiochus the Great here launching this counterattack against the armies of the south and routed them in Palestine. And some apostate Jews actually joined forces with Antiochus, probably thinking they could win freedom for the Jews by siding with the winner. That didn't work. Verse 16, uh, he who comes against him will do as he pleases and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, that's the promised land, Israel, with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect, but he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn, so he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel, that's the promised land, Israel, of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle." What is this talking about? More world history here. Antiochus the Great paid these Jewish mercenaries well, but he didn't grant them freedom. In fact, he formed this false alliance with Egypt by giving his daughter Cleopatra, not the one associated with Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony, but he gave his daughter Cleopatra in marriage to Ptolemy the Fourth, or excuse me, Ptolemy the Fifth. He intended her to serve as a spy, but she loved her new Egyptian husband more than she loved her daddy. Happy Father's Day. Um, there. Having achieved control of Palestine, Antiochus the Great attempted to conquer Greece, but this was a region which Rome had an interest in at that time, and the Roman army defeated Antiochus at Thermopylae. You guys know about that from movies in the theaters, I'm sure, and Magnesia, and he returned to Syria, where he died in an insurrection. He was succeeded by his son, Seleucus Philopater, who became infamous for his oppressive taxes which he levied on the nation of Israel to pay back Rome for the injuries and damages caused by his father's battle. He was assassinated by his prime minister, who most likely poisoned him. Now, you're all sitting there going, yeah, this is an ancient soap opera. What is all this about? Well, it's simply this, and I quote from one commentator, the precise way in which these prophecies were fulfilled points to the accuracy of Scripture. That's all we're learning this morning. Forget about all the dates and the names and the facts and the who married who and who poisoned who. And this is, it's just saying, that, hey, the Bible is trustworthy. I mean, this thing is true. This commentary went on. It also points to the continued suffering of Israel as it sat in the middle of these two warring dynasties. And this was all God's, a part of God's plan to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Well, we have the war of Persia and Greece, and then we have the war between Assyria or, or Syria and uh, Egypt. And now let's thirdly look at the war of Antiochus Epiphanes on Israel. The war of Antiochus Epiphanes on Israel. And that's what we see in verses 21 through 35. 
Notice verse 21. In this place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor or of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. History records how Seleucus Philopater was succeeded by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the younger son of Antiochus the Great. He usurped the throne from his nephew, who was the rightful heir. Uh, we've already met this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, as the Jews called him. Um, he was the small horn of Daniel chapter 8. We, we said he was a type of the Antichrist. He's an example Uh, a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist would be like uh, during the time of the tribulation in the future. But notice verse um, 21 here. Uh, Well, verse 23, excuse me. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him." Those who eat his choice food will, de- will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. And he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he'll be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So he'll come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. They will set up the abomination of desolation. We've heard of that before. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant but the people who know their god will display strength and take action those who have insight insight among the people will give understanding to the many yet they will fall by the sword and by flame by captivity and by plunder for many days now when they fall they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine purge and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. You say, what is all that about? Well, that is about Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's interesting, he's given as much attention as all the other kings before him combined, again, likely because his, if how his invasions affected the land of Israel, unlike any other king that preceded him. But more importantly, he foreshadowed the Antichrist who would desecrate and destroy the land of Israel just like Antiochus Epiphanes did. Antiochus Epiphanes had it out for the Jews. Bottom line. And, and, and he took out his wrath on them, even though it appeared that he was seeking to conquer the king of the south and was hindered from gaining complete control of Egypt on two occasions by Rome. Both times on his retreat north, he vented his anger and frustration on Israel. He was having a pity party on his way back north and, and so he took out his frustration on the nation of Israel two times. And he slaughtered thousands of Jews. 
He deposed the Jewish high priest. He outlawed Judaism. He placed guards around the temple to prevent people from worshiping. He burned copies of the law. He converted the temple into a pagan shrine. In fact, on December 16th, 167 B.C., he erected an altar to Zeus on the altar of burnt offering outside the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and forced the priest to eat the pork from the sacrifice. I also read that he smeared the blood of the pig all over the temple. I mean, this was what was considered the abomination of desolation, a pig being sacrificed in the house of God. I also read that the Jews were compelled to sacrifice a pig on the 25th of each month to celebrate Antiochus Epiphany's birthday. This guy was a maniac. And yet, there were many apparently that went along with him. And this was prophesied, motivated by his false promises. But there was a small remnant, as the text says, who remained faithful to God refused to engage in all of his abominable practices, and they were persecuted and they were martyred for their faith. I think this small group that uh, is referred to here towards the end, um, this, this group will... really rescue the temple... Uh, this is a reference to the Maccabean revolt. The, the faithful Jewish um, remnant, if you will, was led by Judas Maccabeus, known as the Hammer. That's what his name meant. He led this revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and eventually reclaimed the temple, cleansed it, and restored it as a place of Jewish worship. And you know as well as I do, this, this wasn't the last time the Jews would face religious persecution. I mean, that has been their history. Trouble and suffering has followed the nation of Israel through their entire history and will come to a brutal climax during the end times through the man symbolized by Antiochus Epiphanes, the man we know as the Antichrist. And I believe this, this transition here between verses 35 and 36, we, we go from the near future, wars in the near future, these, these are all, everything up until verse 35 has been attested to in the history books. It's already happened. But there's nothing in the history books that, that, that uh, describe what happens in verses 36 through 45. And so here we have the final war in the distant future. There's a big leap now from the past to the future. And again, notice it says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. And so he's talking about the future now. These things haven't happened yet. And, and by the way, you say, well, why, why do you think... Some would say this is just continuing to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. The reason why I think it's talking about the Antichrist is because all the previous prophecies that we've looked at already refer to the Antichrist. So they talk about all these other kings, they talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, but then they always leap forward and talk about the Antichrist. So it makes sense this final 
prophecy or this final vision would follow this same pattern. And so here we go with the Antichrist. And the king will do as he pleases. Now we're talking not about Antiochus Epiphanes. We're talking about the ultimate Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will, be, he will magnify himself above them all. In other words, the Antichrist will be absolutely consumed with himself. No need for a woman. Some would say that means he's going to be a homosexual. I think that's reading into the text. It may be, mean that. Who knows? The point is he's just absolutely consuming himself. Verse 38, but instead he will honor a God for fort, of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overthrow them, and pass through them. He will also enter the beautiful land, the land of Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate them. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, talking about Jerusalem, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And so there's lots there that we could talk about this morning about the end times and about the final battle, the battles that will be fought uh, during the, the time of tribulation. And apparently there's that, that, that same region, right, kings from the north and kings from the south, the same thing will be happening. The same dynamic will be playing itself out. It's all going to be going down in the beautiful land, the jewel, um, the, the, the holy land, Jerusalem, Israel. That's where it's all going to play out. And some would say that the kings, uh, the kings of the north, the king of the north would be Russia potentially. Um, there's uh, some references in Ezekiel to Gog and Magog, which is most uh, uh, prophetic scholars say is, is a reference to the nation of Russia. Uh, the East could symbolize China. Um, th- there's all sorts of things you can read into here, who, who these nations might, who might be the players uh, during the end times that will come against the Antichrist. And they're going to seek to destroy the Antichrist, and he's going to be able to repel them and destroy them, and he'll appear to be unstoppable And that's when Jesus is going to come back and destroy him. And there will be no one there to help him. Again, what are we to take from this this chapter? Well, again, Daniel was giving a, a detailed revelation of the future suffering and chastening of the nation of Israel. They would suffer through the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, and they would continue to suffer all the way up through the time of the revived Roman Empire and its ruler, the Antichrist. 
And at that point, in the end, I believe that Israel will be at its lowest point in history and be ready to be rescued by the real Messiah, the real Christ. They'll have made a a covenant with the pseudo-Christ, the counterfeit Christ, the anti-Christ, and he'll turn on them. And they'll be ready for the real Christ, and they'll finally accept him as their Messiah, the one that they pierced, the one that they crucified, according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And one commentator said it this way, God will tolerate the atrocities of the Antichrist because they will be part of the process of purifying Israel and preparing Israel. It's the incredible blasphemy and oppression of the Antichrist that will finally bring Israel to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take the abomination of desolation to happen for them to to realize and go, whoa, we desperately need a Savior, and He's not it. (laughs) We thought He was. We thought this guy was our Savior. He's not, and they'll be ready for their real Savior, Jesus Christ. The point is this, God is not finished with Israel. And by way of application, he's not finished with us. Amen? He's not finished with Israel, and he's not finished with us. And God desires, in the same way that he did with the nation of Israel, he desires to refine you and to purify you. And and, and how does he do that? He, He uses suffering and chastening to accomplish that refining and that purifying. Hebrews chapter 12, a familiar passage to all of us that talks about don't despise the discipline of the Lord, that the Lord disciplines us as his children, just like a good dad disciplines his son. Talk about a Father's Day passage. You were hoping, guys, to come and hear a message about being a dad, right? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 This is a good reminder for all of us as fathers. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Guess what? God loves Israel. And that's why he has been disciplining Israel and and, and, and scourging Israel, if you will, spanking Israel, if you will. And, and, And he will continue to do so to refine her and purify her and prepare her for receiving Jesus Christ as her Messiah. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father is not disciplined? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. He wants to make us like him. And I love what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, in light of what we learned last week about spiritual warfare and fighting against the devil and fighting against uh, the demons, it says this, uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, you're not the only one who's having to go through what you're going through. The suffering that you're experiencing, the discipline, the chastening, whatever, however you want to describe it, you're not the only one. 
that there's others around the world, other brothers and sisters in Christ who are enduring, experiencing and enduring these same types of suffering. And this is it. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Being chastened, suffering, being refined, purified by the Lord through trials and tribulations, guess what? That is an evidence of God's grace and love in your life. That you're one of his kids. And he loves you, he cares about you, and he wants to make you more like Christ. And so how does he do that? He brings suffering, he brings trials into your life. And in the same way he was doing all that for the nation of Israel and continues to do all that for the nation of Israel, he wants to do that in our lives as well. The question is, are we sensitive to and responsive to God's discipline and correction in our lives? Or do we get stubborn and resist his correction? And so he has to use extreme measures to get our attention to bring us to repentance. You don't want to be that kid. You don't want to be that kid. You want to be that kid that when he gets confronted by the parent, by that dad, and and he realizes he did wrong, and guess what? I know I did wrong, dad, and yes, I deserve to get spanked. Go ahead, give it to me. And, 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 and it's all over. I'm going to hug you and we're going to be forgiven and we're going to be restored and we're going to move on. Don't be that kid that resists that. In fact, the knowledge that Jesus could, could, back, could come back at any moment should provide that incentive, right, to pursue holiness. To pursue holiness. 1 John 3, 3. When he returns, we'll see him, we'll be like him, and those who have this hope purify themselves. One last thought that I think we should take away from Daniel chapter 11 is that knowing the future, knowing the future, we know the future, changes the way we live in the present, or at least it should, right? Knowing the future should change the way we live in the present. It should change the way that we relate to unsafe family and unsafe friends and coworkers, and how uh, it should change how we set our priorities. It should change how we view our problems. It should give us hope. It should give us comfort that God is in control of every detail of history. I mean, we're talking about, talking about precision here. I mean, he cares about the littlest details of history. Well, if he cares about the littlest details of history, don't you think he cares about the littlest details of your life? And he's wisely working out his will for the world, but he's also wisely working out his will for your life. And so guess what? There's no need to be afraid. There's no need to be anxious that we should walk away this morning with great comfort and great hope in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this chapter. While it's um, overwhelming at at points, um, I think there's a simple lesson that you just want us to know that what you say uh, will happen, happens. 
and, and we've already seen it in the past, and so it gives us confidence that what you've, already, what you've said in, the, in your word is going to come true in the future as well. And so, Lord, we anticipate that, that day when you send your son Jesus to come back and to set everything right and to put the Antichrist and Satan and demons in their place once and for all and that you exalt your children, your sons, your daughters, your people and uh, that we have the privilege of reigning with you forever and ever. Lord, I pray that you would give us comfort, give us peace, give us hope this morning especially those of us who may be uh, in a season of suffering, a time of chastening, where we're being refined and, and uh, conformed more to the image of Christ. I pray that that goal that you have for us, that gracious goal to make us more like your son, would sustain us, Lord, that we would find your grace sufficient for us during these seasons, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.